Good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. My name is Ginny and I serve as the Family Life Director. We are so glad you are here this morning and that you are starting off the week with us in worship. As we announced last week, we are very excited that on Wednesday, February 16th, we will launch our new ministry for kids, Kids Club. Kids Club will be a fun place for kids, kindergarten through fourth grade, to meet here on the West Chicago campus on Wednesdays from 6.45 to 8.15 in the evening, while our other ministries for students in fifth through eighth grade are taking place as well. In Kids Club, kids will play games, build friendships, dig into God's Word, and work on memorizing Bible verses. There is no cost to participate, and kids can join at any time. If you're interested, register online at wheatonbible.org slash kidsclub. Please be in prayer for Kids Club and that the Lord would use this new ministry effort in the lives of these precious children. This is vital to its success, and we appreciate your commitment to prayer. And if you're a parent and you would like to serve, we would love to talk with you and get you involved. Finally, two quick reminders. First, if you'd like to be baptized on Sunday, February 27th, please register online at wheatonbible.org baptism for the baptism class, which will take place tomorrow, February 7th. After you register, more information will be sent to you. Second, we are looking for lawyers and those trained to give legal advice to help us relaunch the Administered Justice Legal Clinic here at our West Chicago campus. Administered Justice has been providing legal advice virtually during the pandemic, but with your help, we can reopen our legal clinic in person one Saturday per month and give people the opportunity to sit down with you for a 45-minute session and get advice on their legal situation or question. This is a unique and wonderful ministry opportunity to serve those not only within our church family, but our surrounding communities as well. Check out wheatonbible.org slash administerjustice for more information. That's all we have for today. Blessings on your Sunday and the rest of your week. Good morning and welcome, brothers and sisters, to the weekly gathering of our family of God. This morning, we start our service, and our service is based on um, the pleasure of worship. That's our focus this morning. So I encourage you to close your eyes for just a moment and take in the reality of these words of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all peoples see his glory. Amen. <laughs> Excuse me. Our God is a great king, and this morning we encourage each other to set him as Lord and king over all, using the song, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Let's stand.
We have a little activity we're going to do together. We're going to write a few more lines of that hymn together. So the question that's going to be for our open floor is, what would you personally give God praise and glory for? So we'll open up the floor and have someone give a reason, and then I'll say it so that everyone online can hear. And then we will all respond with, to God all praise and glory. Okay? All right, let's do it. So what would you give God praise and glory for? His love. His love. To God all praise and glory. His mercy. To God all praise and glory. Uh, slow to anger. To God all praise and glory. His faithfulness. To God all praise and glory. The comfort that he gives. To forgiven. God has given us that, and that's what we're going to stand and recite the Nicene Creed together now. So stand with us and praise God for who he is. He's our Redeemer and our Savior and our Lord. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We believe in the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
going to sing is a new one, and it's found on the inside of your worship order. If you want to follow along, it's on our theme for the day. We sang, To God All Praise and Glory. Now we're going to sing, Come Praise and Glorify, all the same.
You are, we worship you. You are great and holy and just and merciful and loving and unlike any other. We worship you because of all that you have done for your beautiful creation that reflects your creativity, your power, and your majesty. In our brokenness, you came to be the ultimate sacrifice for us, to bring us good news of the gospel, and we are so grateful for that priceless gift. We worship you because we love you. You loved us first so we could know and experience your steadfast love. May we fall deeper in love with you with each passing day and extend that, to, uh, that love to others. We worship you because of all that you are doing as you transform us, each, each of us, step by step, so we reflect more of you, Jesus. Thank you for drawing us near to you, near to us when we are hurting or going through tough times and offering comfort and strength. As we move into a time of hearing your word, Holy Spirit, would you fill this place? Would you open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us this morning? In your most precious name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. A reading from Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his holy name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let it all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Becky. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jonathan Jerez, and I'm the worship pastor here at Wheaton Bible Church. You may have seen me many, many times here leading you in worship uh, through singing. I believe today I'm doing the same. I'm leading you in worship by proclaiming the Word of God. And it's a privilege for me to be able to do this. I oversee our different worship services and worship teams across our different congregations. And it's been such a joy for me to serve alongside with so many people like these that love the Lord, that love the gospel, that love his word, that love the church, and that love this church, and that seek to serve us week after week with joy and dedication. And so it is my pleasure today uh, to share the word of God with you and my heart with you. And we're going to talk about worship now, according to 
the, uh, according to uh, John, the Apostle John, in chapter 4, Jesus says that God is in the business of seeking worshipers. Pastor John Piper once wrote that missions exist because worship doesn't. And I believe that that is true. But I believe that is true not only about missions. I believe that is true about absolutely everything. And that ought to be a driving force behind everything we are and everything we do, both as individuals and as a church. We give, we preach, we serve, we evangelize, we do missions, we work, we build relationships, all things ultimately because we want to be and we want to seek more worshipers for God. That is why we live. And there's so much that we can say about this topic. It is such a broad and complex uh, biblical doctrine. And unfortunately, it is one that has been often cause of great division, unnecessary division among God's people. Entire denominations, families, friends, relationships are severed. People divide over their understanding and perspective on how-tos and how we ought to approach God in worship. And yet we see Jesus in his conversation with a woman at the well. and She was focused on all these how-tos, where, when, how. And yet Jesus comes to show her and to show us the kind of worship that the Father is truly seeking. So today, we're not going to focus on how-tos. We're going to establish what I believe is the most foundational and central thing about worship. And that is our overflowing pleasure in the glory of God in Jesus Christ. I am convinced that if, as a church, we come to a good understanding of this and we do everything we can to keep that as the center, the focus of our worship, that we will stand on solid biblical theological foundation as we address practical things about worship in the future. So there are so many passages we can go to in the Bible to talk about worship. The Bible is about worship. But today I've chosen Psalm 96, and I believe it captures the heart of worship. And there I want to focus then on, seven, uh, on verses 7 to 9, because they've been key when it comes to my understanding and experience of worship. So here's where we're going. I'm going to give you four points, and then we're going to walk through them together. Number one, the essence of worship. Number two, why we worship. Number three, sin and the corruption of worship. And the gospel, the restoration of worship. So pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. It is a solid foundation, a treasure. Thank you that your word is not just a book, but a person that became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us the glory of God 
full of grace and truth. And I do pray that as I speak, that I would speak this morning as one who speaks the Word of God and serve in the strength that you supply, and that your Word would fall in fruitful soil, that, would be, that it would bear fruit for the glory of your name here at our church. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's go to point number one, the essence of worship. And before we go there, notice that verses one to three are an exhortation to express, to demonstrate worship to the Lord through singing. And we just did that. We are commanded as a people of God to sing as a fitting expression of worship to Him. Psalm 34, verse 1, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Notice the phrases, at all times and always be on my lips. And although we know that singing and music aren't synonymous of worship, it is evident in the Bible that God has given it a prominent role as an instrument, a means through which his people express worship to him through all seasons of life. So think of when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, the first thing they did was singing. The largest book of the Bible is a book of songs, a collection of songs. Jesus, his last night with his friends in the upper room, before he went out to die, they sang a hymn together. Think of Paul and Silas in prison, spending the night, what could have been the last couple of hours of their lives, singing to the Lord. And then we get to the book of Revelation, and in chapter 5, we see, we get to see what worship looks like around the throne, and again, we find a song of praise to him who's on the throne and to the Lamb. So, it is evident in the Bible that God's people are a singing people. So verses 1 and 2, sing to the Lord, Wheaton Bible Church, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord and praise his name, sing to him. Now I want us to see that the psalm doesn't just exhort us to sing to the Lord to worship him, but it tells us why we ought to do that. In verse 4, we see that it starts with the word for or because which means he's going to give us the reason for this extravagant expression of worship to the Lord. And that is, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. So great is the Lord and he is most worthy. We worship God because we have come to know his greatness, his surpassing greatness and his worthiness. We worship God because we have seen the splendor and the majesty that are before him. Verse 6. His greatness means that he is supreme and infinitely more valuable and superior than everything else and everyone else. That nothing else comes close to him. There is no one like him and he is truly the best in every way. And his worthiness, his most worthiness, implies that everything he is, everything he does, and what he is like, calls for, it demands, 
It inspires worship and responds one way or another from all those who see him. Now, all of this speaks only about the outward aspect of worship, the fruit of it, if you will. Now, I believe that worship is always an internal experience and disposition of the heart before it shows up as an external act or expression. We know that God has absolutely no interest in mere acts, religious acts, and physical expressions that don't flow from genuine love and affections for Him. And that's why we find Jesus in Matthew 15 quoting Isaiah when He says, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. Notice the phrase is with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The problem is the disconnect between their hearts and the acts of worship. Church, there is always, always a sequential connection between the genuineness of our worship response and our real, personal, internal, relational knowledge of an encounter with the reality of God's surpassing greatness and infinite worth. In other words, how genuine our worship is, how deep and how high it goes, will always be directly correspondent to how much we value God in our hearts. Singer-songwriter Paul Balazs says, we can't fake corporately what we don't foster privately. We can't do that. Eventually, the, the fruit will come out, and God has no interest in that kind of worship. Now, notice the phrase, ascribe to the Lord, in verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord. Three times we are told to do this in verses 7 through 8. The word ascribe could also be translated as give to the Lord, attribute to the Lord, pay to the Lord. Almost like an accounting term. Give to him something that is due his name. And remember verse 4 when it says, Great is the Lord and he is most worthy of praise. He deserves praise. It is due his name. Ascribe three times and then in verse 9, worship the Lord. And I believe these are two different ways of saying the same thing. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Worship the Lord. In other words, to worship the Lord is to ascribe to him something. And now I want to draw attention to the word glory. It occurs four times in these three verses, or four verses, and whatever that is, it must be key to the psalmist and certainly very important to the Lord. And in the Bible, the word glory, the overwhelming supernatural manifestation of the presence of God could mean something like the essence of God in all its fullness and weight. His glory is the inseparable and undivided sum of all his qualities, all his excellencies, his attributes. 
So to know and to encounter the glory of God is to know and encounter the whole of Him altogether. So the glory of God is the fullness of God. But this word glory can also often be understood as the value, the worth of God. If you put all of His excellencies and attributes together, the sum, the undivided sum of who He is, the whole of Him, and you put Him in balance with everything else, how much is His value? So when I read the word glory in the Bible, I often read it as how much God is worth. And I think that's in part what it means here in Psalm 96. As we come to know the infinite worth of God, we ought to ascribe it to him in our hearts and in our expressions of worship together. So with this in mind, I think we could answer the question, what is worship with something like this. Worship is the internal experience of the human heart that flows from ascribing supreme worth or value to something or someone, resulting then in expressions or acts of adoration, love, praise, reverence, submission, and obedience. And it is precisely because of his understanding of this kind of worship that I believe the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And whatever was gain to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And I love this phrase, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. He knew the surpassing greatness and the infinite worth of Jesus and absolutely nothing else got even close. Nothing else. So the question for us is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you see his surpassing greatness? Do you know his infinite worth? Or to use the words from Psalm 96, do you know the glory of God, which you're supposed to ascribe to him? How much is he worth to you? And that brings us to point number two. Why are we this way? And I think the answer is we are made for this. We are made for pleasure this is not where I give you a few steps or points on how to become a better worshiper. This is not a try harder, do better kind of thing. This is truly a miracle. And here's the other thing about it. You and I don't have to be called to worship. You know that? We are all worshiping all the time. We are born worshipers and we worship 24-7. Everyone around the world right now is worshiping if they're awake, maybe in their dreams as well. We are worshipers. Isn't that what we do with this? We love technology. We love social media. We love stuff. 
And we are willing to go into monthly plans, get into debt, do whatever we can to get one of these, the latest one. You get this one, and in three months, need another one. That's what we do. Because worship is not just a Christian activity, it is a human one. And we do that with work, with marriage, with kids, with our careers, with money, with social status, with reputation, with our ethnicity and identity, with the American dream, with sports, with singleness, with freedom, with rights, with politics. We do it with everything. We ascribe supreme value and find our worth in things. Just look at where most of our time and energy and thoughts and money go, that's where our ascribing worth is going. Jesus said it this way, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Psalm 96, in a sense, is not a call to worship. It is a call to worship the Lord. It is a call for us to reorient, to redirect our worship to the proper place we were made for him because we were made for pleasure. God made us for God. But in the beginning, if you've read the Bible, you know that God gave us not only himself, but he gave us every good and perfect gift for us to enjoy and to take pleasure in them. Have you ever asked yourself, why did he do that? If we are supposed to love God supremely and to take pleasure in him, and to be careful with the pleasures of the world, why did he make the world the way he did and filled it with overwhelming pleasures? And then he put us right in the middle of it and he said, it's all yours. Except one tree. It's all yours. Why did he do that? Look at creation and you will see, just go outside, open your eyes and you'll see that he really, really overdid it. He wasn't happy with good enough or what was just necessary for us to worship. He overfilled the cup with glory and beauty and wonder. And he did this out of his joy in himself and overflow of goodness towards us. I think the creation account shows us not only that he is powerful to make everything from nothing, but that he loves and cares and gives so much. He overflows so much that he took the time and intentionality to make it all beautiful, wonderful. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiworks, says Psalm 19. Look at verses 11 to 13 in our text, Psalm 96. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant, and everything in them let all the trees in the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Creation itself was made for this. And God loves it. He takes delight in the work of his hands. There is so much in this world that we haven't even seen, and perhaps we never will. And then there's this thing called universe that is full of things that we will never know they even exist. <laughs> and you ask yourself, why? We really think we're the center of the universe. We have no idea who we are dealing with. He's made so much for his own pleasure because God, his nature, he loves to overflow. He loves to give 
and he loves joy. <laughs> That's who he is. And so I believe everything he gave us, what we see and what we know, he made as an invitation to us. And he wants us to love it and enjoy it with him and from him. He wants us to experience pleasure not only directly in him, but also in him through his gifts. They are meant to be received with gladness and gratefulness out of love for the giver and to increase our enjoyment of the relationship that we have with him. Everything is to be received if it is received with thanksgiving, says Paul to Timothy. He also made us in his own image after his own likeness, which means he wants us to be like him and to share in his creative and overflowing nature. And this is why we are the way we are as humans and more so as believers, God's people. So we keep creating, we keep inventing, discovering, making use of all kinds of things to enjoy and express our enjoyment of God through our God-given faculties and gifts. And this is the overflow of the image of God in us. And this is why we do this. This is why we express worship through so many ways in artistic and creative ways as a community. And by doing so, we reflect the God of Psalm 19, the God of Psalm 8. We reflect him who made all things beautiful. Throughout history, you find that societies, including the church, especially the church, I've always used creative arts, different musical expressions and instruments and dancing and painting and sculpture and wall inscriptions and aesthetics and architecture and glass, stained glass, cathedrals, murals, and all kinds of things to express worship and to communicate ideas and to show their understanding and their experience of this world with or without God. And the reason is we are like Him. He made us that way. And that's why we do everything that we do we use everything we use here in this church, and we celebrate all the different artistic and creative expressions of worship. Let me tell you this. Nothing that we do here or use here is a marketing tool. None of this is a marketing tool to reach, to attract, or to appeal to anybody or please anybody. The moment we do that with God's gifts, we kill it and we spoil it all. They are the overflow of God's image and of his life and joy in us by his spirit, expressions of pleasure in him and everything that he has given to us. So we celebrate all the different ways and things through which we are able to display that overflow in this household of faith. And that all sounds wonderful until we get to point three. Sin, the corruption of worship in the fall because worship was distorted. Until we're hit in the face with this reality that sounds like wonderland. But what about idolatry? What about worldliness? And we are well aware of all the dangers of this world and its pleasures and the catastrophic effects of loving the things of the world. And the Bible is full of warnings about this, and we must pay attention to them. We don't live in the garden anymore. 
and our motives are not pure. Our inclination and disposition of heart is no longer to enjoy God and his gifts. Sin entered the world through our disobedience, and now our unbelief, our idolatry, and ungratefulness have ruined our ability to experience pleasure the way we are made to. Romans 1 reminds us, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave, gave thanks to him, but exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Notice that the problem of our sin is not that we find pleasure in legitimate things that God gave us, but that we ignore the giver. We do not glorify him, and we don't even thank him for the gifts. We now replace him with the gifts, and our natural inclination is now to desire them apart from and in place of the giver. We have nothing, we want nothing to do with him, and that is the heart of idolatry and worldliness. It is not our enjoyment of things. It is not enjoying things too much or finding too much pleasure in creation and legitimate God-given pleasures, but wanting them without the giver, the maker. And this is why C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that the Lord, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Our sin makes us now settle for that which was meant to be a means or an avenue for a greater pleasure and satisfaction in connection to the giver. And now we have three problems because of sin. One, our hearts ascribe worth, value, glory to things that we shouldn't. And those are sinful things that we pursue. And that's why Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of the nations are idols. They're worthless, useless, empty. But the Lord made the heavens. And we are reminded that those who worship the idols become like them, dead, empty, useless, worthless. But the Lord made the heavens. So look to him. And by the way, the nations are not the nations out there. That's you and I. Our idols are worthless. Two, our hearts ascribe disproportionate value, worth, glory to legitimate pleasures, but that aren't worthy of supreme love. And that's work, marriage, and kids, and food, recreation, provision, everything that is legitimately from God. But we replace Him. We ascribe more than we should, disproportionate value to it in our hearts. And three, the worst of all, our hearts don't find God worthy of supreme worth, value, and glory. We have lost him. Worship was corrupted, our pleasure was distorted, and we lost the fountain of pleasure. And to this day, we continue to replace him in his infinite worth and greatness with man-made and worthless, empty, broken cisterns. And we are as dissatisfied as we have ever been. That's the problem of sin. It ruins everything. And you may ask, what then? Well, praise God that that's not the end of the story. That Romans 1, 21, 23 is not the last word. God had mercy on us. 
And we turn to point four, the gospel, where worship is restored. The gospel is the only answer for the restoration of true worship in our hearts because through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are restored to a relationship with God through repentance and faith. Our sins are forgiven forever. And God, through Christ, comes now to take our unbelief, idolatry, and ungratefulness and to give us perfect righteousness as a gift of grace But salvation, the gospel, is not only salvation from sin and death, it is also salvation for God, meaning it gives us now a new heart and mind by the Spirit of God, the heart and the mind of Christ, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. New desires, new impulses, uh, new disposition and inclinations, empowered now by the Holy Spirit to live for the glory of God, to know and to live for the glory of God. We have new gospel lenses to see God and to see reality, to see this world, to see everything in it, people and everything in the world. We now have new lenses to see everything through a God-centered perspective. The gospel doesn't only save us, but it restores our humanity Jesus comes to show us what it means to be truly human, but he's not only an example, he's a savior. And he empowers us through his spirit to be like him. And we go from one degree of glory to another, and we become more and more like Christ, which means we are capable now of loving God, of having pleasure in him and overflowing with joy in our hearts in God, in his gifts, the way we were meant to do. It is in Jesus that we see and we come to know the glory of God, of Psalm 96. It is in him that we fully behold and understand that fullness of God, the whole of God, who God is, what he is like. Jesus comes to show us the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 tells us about our experience of the gospel when we come to believe. And it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness in the beginning, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And I love how Colossians 1 tells us that the Son, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have all his fullness, his glory, dwell in him. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact representation of the translation said imprint of his being. So you want to see the glory of God? Do you want to know his surpassing greatness and infinite worth? Then Look for it in Jesus. Open his word and get to know him. Spend time with him. Ask him to open your eyes and your hearts to his beauty, his majesty, the wonders of who he is. This is why our worship must be centered around and be all about Jesus. See, true Christian worship is because of Christ, is through Christ, and worship of Christ, 
The life and death and resurrection of Jesus ought to be, and all of his implications and effects and benefits in this life and eternity, ought to be our most passionate song. When we sing the gospel, they should hear it in Lake Michigan. We sing like people who've been forgiven, who've been given new life. The gospel is our greatest song. Because the only reason our worship is acceptable and pleasing to God is Jesus. It is not our musical style. It is not our language. It's not our ethnic or cultural background. It's not our family tree, even if it's a Christian heritage. It's not the the way we dress to go to church, not even how well we did this week or not. None of that gets even close to what the heart of worship that the Father is truly looking for is all about. And all of that can be great, but that's not what it's all about. It's Jesus. We are welcomed to draw near, to enter the most holy place, to bring our praise, our sacrifice, our broken offering, our songs, our gifts of love and faith to God on the basis of one thing and one thing alone. And that is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's never believe anything else or make our worship about anything or anyone else but Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ, the gospel, (laughs) dwell among you richly or in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through sermons, no, psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That's what it's all about, the gospel. (laughs) Jesus' name. Sing in a song to him, ascribe to him glory and strength, give him glory to his name, make him known. Be loud about it, don't hide it or be shy. He deserves it. Make him supreme in your heart and make him supreme. Church, let's do that. Let's make him supreme here in our gatherings, in our services. And when people walk through those doors, they go, What in the world? What has happened to these people? Who is this Jesus? that they're singing to. Let it be known. Make him supreme in your affections and also in your expressions of worship because he is worthy. So as we conclude, let me give you these four things connected to our four points. These are just my prayer as we lay this kind of foundation for us as a church when it comes to the essence of our worship One, let's ascribe glory to the Lord, meaning it is my desire that as a church we treasure and we value God and his glory above all else and that we live that out together, that we live it out together, that God would have his rightful place in each and every one of our hearts and our lives and our church that we offer him as individuals and in our families and in our lives and also when we come together We offer him undivided devotion with everything we are, everything we have, everything we do. Let's take pleasure in him. Let's overflow with pleasure in him. Come ready. And I know sometimes I come to church and I'm a pastor. I don't want to sing. I don't want to preach. I don't want to read the word. I get up. I don't want to pray. So we need each other. We're going to get there in a moment. 
But come ready. Be in the Word. Be in prayer. Ask Him to call you to worship on Sunday mornings when you wake up. So when you're here, I need you. (laughs) And you need me. We need each other. Let's overflow with pleasure in Him and His gifts because we are a family of people who have been given new hearts, new lenses, new taste buds for pleasure in God and every gift flowing from Him. And we be known as a place of contagious happiness and joy and gratefulness and generosity and creativity and sacrificial giving and all of the above. Number three, let's help one another keep the main thing the main thing and together fight idolatry. And this is why worshiping together, gathering together is important. We see each other. We hear each other. We hug each other. We know each other. And who knows? Maybe the collective sound of our praise, our worship, and our expressions from time to time might save literally our lives or our marriages or our relationships with our kids or our spiritual vitality when we need help. We speak truth to one another and we encourage one another by saying, no, not there. That's not it. Don't ascribe supreme value. That's not it. It's God. Come back to him. Let me show you. Ascribe to the Lord the worth, the glory, the value due his name and be satisfied in him. We warn one another to keep tasting and seeing the goodness, the surpassing greatness and infinite worth of God and seek satisfaction in him alone. And finally, Let's be a church that celebrates the gospel as our only hope to restore our pleasure in God. A church that is known for singing and celebrating the gospel. If we are going to be a church, a gospel culture church, then we must be a people truly with the gospel, the gospel truly at the center, the heart of our corporate worship and nothing else. And I pray that our corporate worship is enabled and fueled by the amazing reality of 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that we worship like forgiven people, that we come here to collectively overflow with our own worship because we believe, we live, and we love the gospel, that we learn to love his presence Together, he dwells in the praises of his people. He is here. And Peter says in his first letter, even though you can't see him, you love him. So that, that may that be true of us. We can't see him, but we see him. <laughs> we love him, and he is here when we gather. We find fullness of joy and pleasures in him forever. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that this is true of us as a church, that you let us see the light of Christ, his greatness, his infinite worth. We need a miracle from you. We long for you. We trust that you meet us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, we are going to transition and celebrate communion together.
And here's something I want to say as we talk about the, the glory of God. The glory of earthly kings pushes people away. It creates distance between them and common people. However, God is nothing like earthly kings. His glory, his supreme glory of the heavenly king, the true king of heaven, invites us in. It gets low to our level. That's what he's done in Christ. And at our level, to the lowest level, death, and even death on a cross and the grave for you and for me to bring us into his family. And this is what this table represents and anticipates. Family time with our king. Family time with our father, with our friend, with our savior, and with his son who gave his life for us and Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So church, come in. And by grace and through faith in Christ, know that you belong here, that this is your home, this is your table. You have a chair with your name on it. I love that thought. It's just thinking of the table of the king, and my name is there by grace. I don't deserve that. Overflow with enjoyment of his glory and his presence because Jesus is here with us at the table. Bring your offering to him. Now the word of God warns us and tells us that this meal is reserved for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus only. So I'm going to ask you, if you haven't done that, that you abstain from partaking with us. But I'll also say this is a great moment to come to him, to respond to him, to pray that you may see the surpassing beauty of Jesus in his infinite worth. And if you repent of your sins and you believe in him as Lord and Savior, welcome to the family. This is home. So this is a moment for you to take some time with us together to examine our hearts to prepare our hearts to partake of these elements together as we are instructed in God's Word. So let's take a moment to pray to bring our hearts before the Lord. First Corinthians 11, Apostle Paul says that on the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. 
And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So as you open your packet, I, let's partake of the bread together. Now we open the second layer of the cup. And he says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we wait for you. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for this table. Thank you for the fellowship we have with you and one another. Thank you for eyes that see your glory. And we pray that we would make you supreme in our hearts that you would be supreme in our affections and also our expressions of worship, that you continue to save, to comfort, to encourage in this place as we gather as a church. We do believe that you are here as you promised. You are here. And in your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We want more of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close with our response song, let's take pleasure in the Lord and ascribe him glory and strength. Let's stand together.
Before you go, uh, let me remind you, if you are here, um, maybe for the first time or you're here and need prayer, please send your prayer. Use the QR codes found in your seats, and please send us your prayer. Every Tuesday morning, our staff gathers and prays over you and for your requests, and we love doing that. So please, doing that. Um, also, let me remind you, there's many different ways in which you can give. Uh, you can give online uh, or uh, wheatonbible.org slash give, or you can also leave your offering in the boxes as you leave the sanctuary today. So let me give you this benediction and sent you from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And may I say, find joy and pleasure in God forever. And the church says, amen. 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 Church, God bless you. You are sent. Amen.